Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is a special live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And really, it's my honor to bring in one of the most luminary and gifted melodic improvisers of all time. Um, she started her career way back in the early 60s with her husband at that time, Elmo Hope. Um, it was a spiritual time in music before academia got its teeth into the vocabulary of music. When the music ultimately was learned on the streets by people who were just basically organically channeling their soul and the music of the motherland of Africa. Without further ado, Bertha Hope Hope, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you very much. Very happy to be here. You know, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the culture. Uh, I Did you meet Elmo on the West Coast? When did you first meet him? Yeah, I met him on the West Coast just around the time he left Chet Baker uh, to remain out there. He was traveling with Chet Baker, and they were in California for I don't know how long. I think they did Vancouver and San Francisco. And I met him in uh, in Los Angeles around 1957. Could you, to the best of the audience, uh, for the audience out there uh, listening worldwide, I mean, I'm doing a, producing a film documentary on Stan Getz, and he was out there at that time, and... I wanted you to paint the picture of the jazz scene and, and actually what you were doing uh, melodically at that time in your career. Okay, well, right about that time, I was in Los Angeles City College just a little bit before that with Eric Dolphy, who was also going to school after coming home from the Army experience, and so that was really exciting for me to be able to um, to just be involved with people like that. Um, we, I was uh, going to uh, City College for music classes, but of course those were the conventional music classes that were all Euro European, pretty Eurocentric, and had very little uh, jazz attached to them. Um, I grew up in a musical family, and uh, so I was kind of already set up to be as open as I could be around uh, the music that I was beginning to lean toward. Um, academia, as you say, had not gotten a hold of, of the jazz people yet to steer them off in a different direction. And you sort of had to look for what it was you were um, for being, I say I was being pursued by the interest in music and then it just, just caught me and held on. So I was able to go to places with Eric where um, Max Roach was rehearsing with that wonderful band and just be a part of listening to how they put a band together, how they structured a rehearsal, how they structured a song, how they structured their time 
for, let's say, from 4 o'clock in the afternoon till midnight or 1 or 2, when the music, they were just absorbed in the musical experience, learning from each other, passing on information, going over and over and over a song until it was polished. Um, so there was no institute of jazz at that point. The institute of jazz was in a room like that where you could listen to people who knew more than you did and and uh, you could absorb from them based on the knowledge you already had and be happy that you could uh, talk to them and absorb it. Could you so give, were, you know, I mean, this is, this is so, this is so important. I mean, this, by the way, did you, contra, why did you take, why is it Bertha Hope Hope, by the way? Is it, is it Bertha, could I, just, go ahead. It's Bertha Hope, the Bertha Hope Hope is uh, a technical glitch that I cannot remove. Oh, okay, so it's Bertha Hope, thank you. I, this is so, it flows yeah. so much better, but I mean, it, it, like, can you talk uh, as best you can about, this idea of sonic expansion within the room, okay? Because this is the most important thing about music today is that we are dealing in a time where music is mostly digital, electronic music. The beats are crunched into people's ears. And I'm really curious about the learning, the, 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 you know, Dolphy eventually was channeling bird sounds. And... You know, Max Roach eventually came up with M-Boom. I mean, these were like, this was sonic expansion. And I just, I want to, if you could talk about a specific time where you actually witnessed vocabulary of music growing in this setting. Well, what I witnessed was the passing on of information through, through people's experiences all together. Not tapes, not digitized. No, we like there was nothing electronic in the room. You you were dealing with the sound waves of an acoustic bass and an acoustic piano, and um, even whatever your own heartbeat rhythm is, and where you uh, found your own vibration into the music. So it was a communal experience. Um, and you you had to depend on yourself to bring whatever your instrument brought to the commune, but you also were experiencing this vibrational feeling between the the group. I like to call it uh, like a something that you could sonically refer to from the visualization of a spider web which looks very fragile, but it, it's really strong. And you're all held together by that almost invisible feeling of the vibrations that you bring to each other. And the idea that you are concentrating your energy into your instrument and also very aware of everybody else around you. So there's no, that I came along before all of that was going on before you passed uh, around a real book on a iPhone, you know. Exactly. No, you're. I mean, this is so the, the spider web. Go deeper on the web. This is so. This is where my show lies. Well, I don't know. I just feel like there's this energy 
that has to pulsate between you and all the other people in the room. It's it's a communal effort to hang the music together, to listen for where somebody might have missed something and fill in, to use everything that's out there in space, in your space that you just created, to make the music happen as a unit. You know, it's not a singular endeavor. You're learning your instrument is a singular endeavor, but when you encounter other people uh, in that experience, then it becomes very democratic. It's a communal effort to make the music sing, to make the music live, to get your message into the other people on the bandstand. And altogether, that communal message goes out to the people. And they give it back to you and the energy that they feel from you. It's a, it's a continuum. I think the, the spider web uh, uh, extends into your, into your listening audience, or especially into your uh, um, audience that's live. If you're playing before a living audience, and you're you're aware of the fact that they're there and they want to have a good experience. You want them to have the experience that you are having on the bandstand. Uh, we're talking to a complete spiritual love child, Bertha Hope. It's such an honor to have her on the Jake Feinberg Show. I mean, did you, what What was the, you and Dolphy uh, linked up at what, what was the college? Uh, we were at Los Angeles City College. L.A. City College, and and yeah. and then so would you wind up at Larry Gale's Coffee House to play? No, I wasn't involved in that. Tell me a little bit about um, one of the issues. That, one of the things I, I I'd like to talk to you about is <clears throat> the more that I mean I've done four dozen interviews for this documentary on Stan Getz and and. I wanted to know, from your point of view, uh, you know, how much uh, of a factor, I mean, here's the bottom line. If you, people used a lot of heroin, and if you, my question is, if you, if you were using, were you, and excuse me, if you weren't using, were you not trusted? Were you not part of the, of the scene? Were, that To me, on the New York side, the vibe I get is that there were there were cats that were sober, teetotalers, didn't do anything, and that was cool. But for the most part, you there was a little bit of mistrust if you weren't part of that group. And I, I wanted to, to find out from you uh, how much how prevalent was heroin use, you know, in the in the fifties amongst amongst the cats. Well, you know, I didn't encounter the heroin use until. Um uh, till I came to New York. In fact, I was oblivious to the fact that many musicians were being paid off in heroin in Los Angeles. And I could imagine that that might have been going on in New York, too. But um, I came to New York in 1961. I think there was a big division between users and non-users because um, some people were not even... Uh, recognized uh, at at the same in the same way that other people were, depending on 
who you knew in media, you know. Uh, but I have heard it said that people were really divided, in a sense. Um, and I think that that was a lot of that may have had some serious consequences for where you could work, depending on whether you could be manipulated or not. So sometimes the uh, bands were the, the whole band were uh, people who used heroin, and then you find another band and nobody was using heroin. So, but um, so 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 in, in, you you weren't at the time in L.A. Cats were getting paid with with junk, and then in New York. Uh, if if the band always was addicted to heroin, you, you you say they could actually be manipulated to be playing three four sets a night and just get paid in drugs. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying that I think that because it was part, it seemed to be part of um, the, the contract. This I know about in Los Angeles. I really don't know how that worked in New York, but I I can remember sitting and waiting. Um, um, to take people home, you know, after a great gig and wondering why we were sitting around so long after the gig. <laughs> why why yeah. wasn't anybody ready to go home? I'm tired, you know, let's go <laughs> home. Yeah, and so they were... Yeah. When, do you remember viscerally how... I mean, you are a strong woman. You're, you've, you know, I mean, you are a mother... Uh, amazing, accomplished player. Uh, did it? Do you remember what you felt when you, it sort of when this it, it was revealed to you that in fact all these a lot of cats were hooked on junk? And when you, you did you feel? Can you talk a little bit about how you felt viscerally? Well, you know, I was married to a person who used drugs, and I did not understand the dynamics of. Those, that drug use. I didn't understand how I fit into his life. I didn't understand anything about that. And then all of a sudden I was in it for a period of about two years um, because I've had no, I, I had no inkling at all about what that situation um, was about and whether it uh, could be overcome. I didn't, I didn't know anything. So I was, I was in there uh, for about two years myself until I understood that this was not going to work for me. Elmo was getting very sick. He eventually, you know, he died very, very young. And at the, when, God rest his soul, when he died, my drug use was finished forever. So um, my first, uh, the, uh, I, it was just a, a situation that overwhelmed me, the, the use. And seeing what happened uh, to people as a result of it, um, it was kind of overwhelming because I had no drug history. You know, I didn't even smoke or I didn't do marijuana. I didn't do anything for until way later. Into, uh, not in L.A. at all. Oh, sure. No, I mean... So, uh, how did yeah. I? Why? Why? How did you? Why did you fall in love with Elmo? Oh, how can I answer that? Well, because, <laughs> you know what it is. Because here, here, here's the bottom line. You know, we. You know, here's the thing. He was. Uh, he was. He was like a spirit. It was similar to Coltrane. I mean, I remember George Benson told me 
in January, you know, it was Elvin Jones told him one time, you know, uh, God sent uh, John Coltrane as a spirit just for a period of time. And then he, just like that, he was gone. And it, it's amazing when you look at all the music that Elmo made in this period of time and how much it holds up today, better today than it did then. And I just, I say to myself, even put the drugs aside, the, the, you know, what was charming about him? What was hip about him? What ultimately hooked you in to say, you know, like, I mean, you guys did that, that, that album, the albums that you collaborated on. I mean, it's just like, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a bonding experience that I kind of wish my wife and I had. And I think a lot of couples wish, I, I mean, I think it's a special bond regardless of the drugs. And I'm just, I'm just curious if there was any, anything you could speak of as to, as to your love of Elmo. Well, he was a very giving person to begin with. I mean, very, uh, very, he, he, he was small. First of all, you know, he wasn't that big. He was a very, he was about maybe five, seven and, you know, not a lot of fat on him. So he, but he was um, a person who loved people. Our apartment had a lot of people in it all the time. You know, I baked bread. And, you know, on Sundays, a lot of people were over playing records or talking about music. Or or he liked um, to just have a lot of people around him. It's been said that he was an angry person, you know, but he was not. I did not, he did not deliver that anger to me. I don't know. I, I met him because I tried to convince him that I was uh, learning his music, and he found that a little hard to believe that I was <laughs> in his music. And so I, I, uh, I showed him some songs that I was working on, and then he was convinced that I was, serious you know i might not have been playing them well but he showed me what they were about you know and then i really got interested in um trying to learn as much of what he had written um that i possibly could learn that that worked for me you know from at the time at my skill level i'm still working on his music and i still put bands together under the name el millennium to um, promote his music and deliver it to college students now so that he won't be forgotten. And, of course, you know, there is the street that he grew up on in the Bronx is now called Elmo Hope Way. Wow. You know, and, yeah, that, that's, I mean, I, I, to me, this is so, I just want to know Bertha Hope. I, you know, so you were, you loved his music, but. I did love it. The, and I, I heard, it's interesting, I heard first uh, Bud Powell, mm -hmm. and then I heard Thelonious Monk, and then I heard Elmo. So that was the order in which I heard those three pianists, whom I consider the most important three of the shaping of the sound of, of the bebop piano from the 40s into the uh, 50s. Elmo's recognition was withheld because he was um, traveling, but that's the, he was traveling with the rhythm and blues bands, but he was writing all this music while he was playing one thing, he was writing something else. So I fell in love with the man and I fell in love with the music. And um, 
was he was he on the was he on the like the Chitlin circuit with these like like these R and B bands and things like that? Or? He was with Joe Joe Morris Territorial Band uh, in the South. Yeah, they were doing rhythm and blues. They were recording for Atlantic Records, and he was playing twelve to the bar. I want to know. I, I, this is so. I, I I cannot believe. So I mean. You're 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 there Sunday afternoons in L.A. But but Bertha Hope, who who was in your band? The, these cats that this this time period in jazz, you had these pianoless court quintets going on. Jimmy Jufree, all these other you know Harold Land was out there. Curtis Counts. I know these are guys that collaborated with Elmo. Who did you play? With? Who were you playing with? Well, I was playing with Billy Higgins. Oh my God! You were playing with I, Billy Higgins in 1958. Are you? This is unbelievable. Well, he, well the uh, the reason that came about was because he and I went to school together. I mean, junior high and part of high school. So he was really one of my first musical buddies. Who I was, love it. Uh, the same kind of music I was listening to. Um, there was. Uh, Dave, Dave Pike, the oh vibes player. Are you kidding me, dude? That that, that, that dude was a ferocious <laughs> vibes player. Did you? I mean, and, and then Master Charles oh, Lo- Lloyd must have been out there. Charles, yeah, I think he was there, but I didn't run into Charles. There were other bands that hired me that I got a lot of knowledge from. That was Teddy Edwards. I worked with oh Teddy my Edwards. Gosh, this is I ridiculous. By Red. The, oh, the, vibe! I mean, vi- are you vi- you were see? But I mean, this is why I'm doing my show. Vi red, <laughs> vi. So just to be clear, Billy Higgins, Dave Pike, and Bertha Hope. That was a trio. Were you in a trio together? Yeah. Yeah. And that was vibes, yeah. vibes, drums, and piano. Right. Oh my God! I mean, th- this is and so vi- so. I mean, ultimately, on the bandstand. Could you talk to the, to the to younger people out there, you know, how you, even though you might have gotten infatuated with Elmo's composition writing, how did you develop your own individual sound? Uh, I'm still developing my own individual sound, I think, but it just, I think it came from, first of all, having small hands and um, mo- the most technique that I ever acquired really as a technical player was through um, uh, a Bach technician. So, you know, I didn't have a wide sweeping variety of, of solid technique. I have perfect pitch. So I, I think I worked a lot to, in, to develop what I was hearing and shape it into what would fit what fit my hands. I liked also a lot of dense chords that I could hear. I could hear more than I could play them, you know, so my my style sort of moved through what I was capable of, I think. And I think now it's even my style is kind of changing a little bit more because I'm, I've learned a little bit more about uh, how to play what it is I'm after without getting too uh, 
without getting too technical. I really, I still like to hear melody. I'm very um, sensitive to weaving something around a motif uh, and having people with me on it. You know, I, I don't have any real desire to just be eclectic for the sake of it. You know. All right. No, I mean it has to be so, done within the group context. I agree. Yeah, um, and I have had some experiences with very abstract playing, but I haven't found my—I haven't found a voice inside me that responds uh, to that playing enough to continue to develop it. It, it could still come. I'm still young. Oh, you're and you're you're and, and, young and you. Oh, you're, sure. you're you're you're. I mean, just for the back record backstory, Bertha Hope. I sent her a a buddy of mine here in Tucson uh, was like, you know, you should connect with Bertha Hope. She's you know she's about as old school as they get. And so I was like, all right, let me. And so we became friends on Facebook, and I sent her a private message. But I mean, how many people really have instant messenger or even use it? And then uh, on a whim, I said, you know, I gotta hook, I gotta connect with her. And so I hit I hit her up again and. And uh, and now we're able to just, you know, transmit all this beautiful wisdom, philosophy and knowledge. Did, I mean, it's, uh, you know, there was a lot of did you, did you play in drummerless um, uh, situations? Because to me, uh, a lot of people, a lot of my generation, I'm 39, a lot of younger peeps, they, they think they have rith good rhythm. They actually really don't have good rhythm. And part of it is I'm also pretty convinced that. Uh, a lot of times there was not always a trap set involved. You listen to some of the stuff, Stan Getz with the Oscar Peterson trio. There's no drums. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, I know you played with Billy, but was there a situation where you played in a drummerless uh, context and did you know did that help you, your ears grow and, and, and did it help you develop good rhythm? Uh, I only played in that abstract context with... Uh, drummerless bands. I did spend um, some time, well, it wasn't that long, but I, I worked with um, um, Frank Lowe with, in a drum. I don't band. know that name. I don't know that name. Jack, I think Jack Walrath was in that band. Jack also. Walrath was in that band. Unbelievable. Right. And, and that was uh, not even that long ago, I'd say seven or eight years ago. Uh, but no, I wasn't drawn to drummerless bands, and I that was I had a really hard time dealing with rhythm to, to begin with. So playing with a drummerless band probably, <laughs> I guess I, the, it would have been a cheat to say, you know, well let's not have a drummer because my time's not that hot. <laughs> <laughs> but. <laughs> But I mean, I, yeah, um, go ahead. Those were just things. I mean, it took me a really long time to find the pocket and um, move move through the music that I wanted to create and have everybody on the same page. So I haven't dealt with drummerless bands, but um, or been that attracted to them. For me, the Drum is um, something that you have to think twice before you eliminate it from anything you call jazz. That has deep implications for me, eliminating the drum. 
because the drum is like the signifier of all that's happened to us, to separate us, I mean, as an American people, African-Americans. The drum was, you know, the, 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 the signal. So to remove the, the, the piece in the band that gives the signal in terms of our culture, our separation, our togetherness, to me, is a, makes a really serious statement all by itself about how you, uh, where you fit. I, I think no. I think you're making a really good. I think you're making an incredible point, uh, and I want you to go deeper on it. But I don't mean to diminish that. It's just the the it, it wouldn't be, uh, you know, lacking. You know, the piano is a percussive instrument. You know, maybe there's a, a some con, uh, conga drums or you know. I mean, it, there's it's just not the traditional trap set is what I should be what I should be saying. I mean, ultimately, all those pieces of drums were put together in the. <laughs> first trap set was played at Congo Square. Bill Summers. Yeah, yes. So, I mean, it's it's not the removal of the drum entirely. It's just actually the entire trap set. But can you talk about yeah, that? Well, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I understand what you mean. You're, you're talking about the trap set as it was, as it did finally come together as a trap set. Exactly. With all those other, yeah, different. Well, I don't know. So I'm not so attracted to drummerless groups. I heard one the other night, and it, they were great. I mean, they 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 have a sound of a group without a drummer has a totally different sound. The, the pieces of the drum are taken up by other instruments. You know, the bass does a little, the the piano does a little, and um, bringing some of those elements that the drum would supply. I'm just not normally attracted. To no, you, I mean, you, you. No, this is. I, I. I don't. We don't even go any farther on this. I. I. I'm curious about. You talk about Thelonious Bud, and Elmo. Did those guys call the music bebop? What did they? Did what was the music to them? The, the music that they were that they were the the music they were creating, the vocabulary they're recreating. Was it was it just modern music, or was bebop given the, was the name bebop given by white journalists like myself or people in the industry who wanted to find a way to market it? I, I again just uh, this is. I don't know. I never heard them talk about them talk about compositions and music. <laughs> I don't, you know, now that you ask me, Jake, I don't remember ever hearing Thelonious or Elmo. I didn't know Bud. Um, call it Bebop. Um, I, I really didn't. I mean, it's my understanding that Dizzy Gillespie was the one that coined Bebop and that Bebop might possibly be the only name for the jazz for any parts of the the jazz continuum that had a name given to it by one of the members that was playing it. You know, that was my understanding. But um, I never heard I never heard Elmo refer to the music as bebop or differentiating it from swing or 
Is there a way for you to talk to me in the audience about um, how Elmo and Thelonious helped grow the vocabulary of music? I mean, I'm from the Duke Ellington School, so throw the labels mm-hmm. out, out. But you talked. I just would love you to. This is very important. You read my posts. I mean, it's not a theory-based show, but I am intoxicated by uh, vocabulary extension. So could you talk about the roles that Thelonious and, and Elmo played in helping that growth? Uh, well, um, right around the time that, that that music started to evolve, uh, Elmo, Thelonious, and Bud were inseparable, sort of, from what I understand. I wasn't there, but I've talked to Johnny Griffin and to other people um, uh, who were there who say that Elmo, Thelonious, and Bud shared so much of um, their own musical history with each other in writing. Thelonious and Elmo have some songs that have some are very similar in nature. So I think that the, uh, Elmo, Thelonious, and Bud used to roam the Bronx going to people, friends of their houses to play their pianos till five and six o'clock in the morning. So they were sharing their own ideas about what should happen in the piano chair, you know? So, um, and if you listen to all three of them, you can hear the similarities in their music, and you can hear some of the differences um, also. I mean, Elmo ended up, I think, being a little more lyrical, although he had that, he did have that growling left (laughs) hand, very rapid right hand, that Bud really became famous for, in a sense, you know. But the intricate, like, dark, twisting harmonies he also had in some of his later very intensely kind of, you know, inward kind of music in a way and a, a kind of a threat to other people to even find their message in it. I think that's one of the reasons why they, why other people didn't play it so much. Most music is a little more clarified, a little bit more angular. Um, the amazing thing to me about Monk is that with three, three notes, he could sound so powerful, just single piano and the the math of the three notes and the overtones that were displayed from those three notes were just ringing through the room. <laughs> you are on fire! It's so good. I, I, you're. It's just so nice to connect with you. Um, the the uh, you know, could you um. For me and the audience, also, I, I've I've talked to Joe Chambers about it, and obviously Bill Summers, and a lot of people that are ethnomusicologists. But uh, Randy West and Big Black, um, could you share a story, uh, maybe from those days when you were uh, in the room with Max Roach, or even from your own cultural heritage, your own family, the, about when you learned about the significance of the drum? being able to keep your people together during diaspora, keeping your people together during the harshest times of slavery 
and ultimately culminating it in the rhythms that became melodic improvisation and jazz. I mean, is, can you talk about the story of the significance of the drum? Mm. Well, you know, at the time that it's interesting that you mentioned Max because he was really very significant, I think, in talking to people about the significance of the drums and in his own politics, you know. But um, for me, as I began to learn more about the real culture that uh, African people came from and how they were broken up, in, and not allowed to have a drum in certain places, um, it took on a different meaning when the drums were allowed in Congo Square, where it was known that slaves couldn't get away because of the location. So the drum was okay. That's part of it, you know. Um, in my own, uh, I grew up. Uh, knowing very little about that side of of, of my history. Uh, and I grew up in a household where there was a wide span of ages. My father was 25, a full 25 years older than my mother. So we had that, you know, slavery coming through uh, the second generation my grandmother was born into slavery so I didn't know much about the drum and its significance until much much later so um, it still stands as uh, the idea of the drum and multiple rhythms and rhythmic patterns that come from from Africa are still being infused into uh, the, the even the popular music that people are listening to all over the world. And the more the music expands into the world, the more it brings back other rhythms and other pieces of conversation. But if, if you try to remove the idea of the significance of the drum, then you start to remove for me, um, a lot of the experience uh, of the culture in in this country, because it it went for the combination of the use of the drum to promulgate all these rhythms and the Eurocentric harmony patterns, the music would have never come together to be what it is. It would be something else, but it wouldn't be this. Um, did you, could you talk about the first time that uh, that you went to Africa? I have not been to Africa, Ever, ever. Because nope. the, the, the interesting thing is, uh, I was talking to a bass player, John B. Williams, a uh, very beautiful bass player, and he, um, he was over with Benny Carter doing a Goodwill tour in 76, and um, Earl Palmer was the drummer, and uh, he bought a sit- sit- he bought a sitar in in uh, Pakistan, and uh, he was looking uh, for like a uh, a book uh, on how to learn to play the sitar. You know, every country they went to, where's where's the book? Where's the book? And 
And then somebody finally said, he goes, there's no book. Uh, you, you, the, the, right. you know, it gets, it gets the, the knowledge gets passed down from, from elder to teacher to student. And it, much in the same way that Thelonious Bud and Elmo traded ideas and shared all this stuff or Dolphy and Max and all this stuff. I mean, the point is that that music was, was, was taught from person to person. And then the Europeans came in and they couldn't grasp the 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 metered or the 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 time feel they couldn't notate they, mm. so eventually they notated it and they put it into books and right. okay but but this idea of this you know throw the textbook out and just feel i mean to me this is like the most important thing this is what you were just marinating in in your career and i just want you to talk about feeling the music how to feel the music because we are getting to a point now where the music is so loud, the there's no dynamics. The double bass drum is the only timekeeper, and it's affecting people's ability to hear. So they stop listening, and you can see our our entire construct at this point is crumbling because of this, right? I mean, there's a lot of validity to that. So, I want you to talk about ultimately feeling because you can get up on the bandstand and have monster chops and technique. And then you wind up, uh, people wind up staring at the wall because there's no soul. And so I want you to riff on that whole thing for a minute. Just how do you feel? How did you learn to feel the music? Well, you know, you have, feeling the music, first you have to feel it through yourself. You have to know that it's in there. It's already in there. You have to find a way to trust. You have to trust that what you're feeling is in there. And then you have to understand that there is a, you know, a, a placement that's yours. And then you have to understand, I think there's a placement about where the rhythm belongs with somebody else. And you have to make compromises right there about how they feel about it, how you feel about it. But you have to allow that to happen. And I think we're a little late now in trying to get the last two generations that I've encountered anyway to deal with the fact that that is really an important element of the spirit of the music. The schools are caught up in either trying to get you to work so you can learn how to play 64 notes in, you know, a third of a second <laughs> and breathe fast it quickly um, and play as fast as you can, as quick as you can, play a bossa noble, play a samba, play a blues, play a, a, a ballad, you know, just know where it belongs and what to do with it and when it's called for that you have it on your iPhone or you have it on your iPad or you have the whole real book in front of you and you don't have to feel anything because you know how it goes. You've been taught how to play it and you've been taught all this correctness about what it should be, but you haven't been taught to just let go and find out where your feeling center is for the music. So sadly, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just now remembering the first time I saw an iPhone go up on my bandstand or a, a, a cell phone 
go up on my bandstand. I thought, what are you doing? Well, the girl told me, I, I have the changes here. I said, well, put it down. But I don't know this song. I said, well, you're going to learn it now. Turn that phone off. That was a couple of years ago. I can't do that now because everybody on the bandstand has a phone. There's an old, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, that's you're nailing this because uh, uh, even with the inf- the over-reliance on technology, again, Bertha Hope and I would not be able to, to connect without technology. There's many valuable things for it, but it's also about, like, knowing a deep bag of tunes, like knowing a lot of tunes. And, and, and to me, I mean, you know, it doesn't... It, it, it it comes down to do you believe you know Ornette had Ornette Coleman had his had his music had his house uh, there were these communal the loft scene was huge right at the time when when you moved to New York um, right do yeah you, again people could they could I mean I've interviewed Larry Coriel and Dave Liebman and all these cats I mean they were eating brown rice and uh, tofu to survive and they were you know but you could afford the cost of living is so crushing now. But do you believe that we can focus on all the things that are, quote unquote, hindering music. But do you believe that what is the best way for an organic uh, creation of vocabulary of music to to grow in in 2017? Is it a community? Does it have to be a communal thing? Is it a matter of what would be your advice to (laughs) for people who are searching for to create authentic music and they don't want to take what is quote unquote the mainstream approach would which would be go to school, go to academia, learn all these different styles, and then have nowhere to play? That's a good question. I would hope that that people who are interested, um, well, you've got to start somewhere. You know, you have to start somewhere. I don't. I think the day of being able to pick up two or three instruments till you find out which one you like and just going forth with no guidance is kind of far-fetched. I only know two or three families that, you know, did that, where instruments, there were just instruments around, and you could pick the one you want, and then, but then you had to commit to it and really learn it. But you learned at a different pace, and you learned how to find out things on your own, and then you went for some instruction. Um, I think that you have to you have to pick what it is that you could use out of the technology and not get caught up with um, with styles until you learn to really love the instrument and uh, learn how to master what it is that the instrument offers offers you and then you need to be with somebody to play with you need to experiment together you need to um you know trust that you're both looking for something very special and work on it but you do have you do have to learn how to negotiate your instrument you know i mean i'm still doing that i'm still taking i'm getting ready to take some lessons uh, this week and some new classical technique as I get older and how to um, manipulate some different kinds of fingering because the learning never stops. But um, I think in today's 
uh, today's world with all the technology there is, you have to be careful what you use um, so that you don't get so caught up in the technology and forget that there's a self involved in playing the music. And you need to get together with other people and share ideas and watch and listen to as much vocabulary from before as possible. I mean, you can go to a library now and start with the very beginning of written music or recorded music and play, I mean, hear it all in about, hear samples of where the music has been and where it, uh, where it is now within about, you know, four or five hours. But the, the, and I wouldn't discourage anybody from going to school. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not anti-school or anti-institutes of jazz. I just think that along with that, if you are going that direction, you've got to remember that you are the life of the instrument. The instrument has a life, and you have to put your life into that instrument. The two of you become one together, you know, and that's how you develop your own style. I never transcribed anything. That's one reason why I sound the way I do, but I never transcribed a lick in my life. <laughs> I never wrote down a bird line, or I can hear it. I can hear it. As I said before, I have perfect pitch. A lot of people don't believe perfect pitch exists, but I can hear the line, but I'm I haven't written it down so that I could study it and copy it. And that's probably, maybe that's to my detriment. But um, I listen and hear a lot of people playing, and I could close my eyes, and I can't tell one from the other. Exactly. I know who they listen to but I, because I can hear who they transcribed. But then it's not, I can't tell you who they are. They pretty much, if they came from the new school, they sound one way. If they come from Juilliard, they sound another. Depends on the curriculum and who you're told to, you know, go practice for six hours. I, I, you know, it's just, it's kind of frightening. And then there are some real stars out there, some people who have really found their own voice, but they've been highly, you know, you can hear they've been influenced from a lot of people and they've developed their own style as a result of that. And so the music goes forward, you know. No, I was going to say, um, you know, uh, part of it was about, I mean, for so many of the of the rock drummers who I've talked to that were so influenced by the the great jazz drummers, I mean, they'd, they'd slit their wrists if somebody came up to them after a show and said, wow, you, you sounded great, you sounded just like so-and-so. You didn't want to sound like everybody. But now we're in this conformist time where... You know, you have to sound like this person or that yeah. person. Demonstrate that you understand this technique. One cat I wanted to talk to you about was Horace Tapscott. Did you know Horace? I didn't know him nearly as well as I would like to, but he was very original. He had his really? own. He had his own collective. I mean, he had his own. Right. You know, and he had he brought in younger cats. And I mean, what was there? Could you just talk as best you can about? I'm sort of veering off here, but in, you know, not, I interviewed the bass player, uh, Miroslav Vichus, and he, uh -huh. okay, so he talked about, okay, so we're, you know, we're, I was talking to him about uh, 
weather report or uh you know these bands where the <laughs> the bass guitar uh the bass string bass uh, all of a sudden became more of a third voice as opposed to just uh keeping time and uh or locking the groove and he pointed out that six it is actually occurring six years earlier uh with uh, bill evans and scott lafaro uh around 1961 where they were communicating and lafaro was using the bass as a voice as another voice and i kind of want to know about uh you know when you were in new york when you first moved there uh the bass players that you worked with and if if in fact you were experimenting within the group conversation uh with a bass that was uh adding a was basically acting as a solo instrument no i didn't but i do remember being uh, uh just fascinated by scott lavaro because he was really a he was having a conversation with himself <laughs> with the it was and it was incredible to watch and to hear him play because to me, he really did re- revolutionize the sound. I think it was still acoustic pretty much then, almost, you know. Um, that is, the sound was not over-amplified, is what I'm really trying to say. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you could hear, yeah, you could hear him really, he was so clean, and he was really playing lines like a horn, and then answering himself with another line like a horn um but no i didn't get into too much of that i uh, i really didn't um and then i mean and then i married a bass player who was not really into that kind of playing either he called himself a thumper yeah well i mean i i, I want to do part two with you uh specifically and focus on walter booker because uh it's funny you bring up walter because uh, the uh, the cat who welcomed Miroslav into his apartment and let him crash with him for a month, and they played and played and played. And the guy who uh, uh, who Walter connected with, Bob Brookmeyer and Miles Davis, uh, was Miroslav Vitius. Yes, uh, and, I know. You know, and 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 so this 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 speaks to the familial, the communal quality of the music. Um, and I and I don't want to rush through any of this stuff, and we've been hopping all over the place. Um, I know, but, but and what, I do have. Yeah, and I, so, but I, but my final question for for set one here with Bertha Hope, um, if you could talk about your concept of love, and how you bring love to the world. Well, you know, I believe you have to understand how to learn how to love yourself with all of your flaws and all of your shortcomings and understand that everybody around you is pretty much made up the same way you are and that you have to every day I think reach out to the humanity and other people and try and surround yourself with that kind of feeling toward humanity I I think that, and I do believe that music is one of the ways that we connect with a very universal kind of language. Uh, I I I just believe that the music 
will save part of us. It may not save all of us, but it it will save uh, if you can let the music in and love yourself enough to let it come back out of you. I I try my best to spread some feeling of the kind of love, the universal love that we all need to learn how to have more of for each other because um, the struggle for us to all survive on this little planet that's getting smaller and smaller is um, something that all of us need to be responsible to. And I think love is the answer to most of that. It's so deflated in terms of its importance, but it is the only thing that really counts. Um, and yeah, because we're fixated on, you know, physical love, that's the only, but there's many different kinds of love. Many different kinds of love. Yeah, I think, yes. I mean, but I think that love that means that you're here on the planet for one more day and that you, you're, even though you're only maybe as important as one little grain of sand on a beach, uh, what you are in the context of your own reality is it needs to be based more on love than on some other reality of what, what you can take. It's more like what you can give. Um, that's how I try. Yeah, go ahead. I was saying that's how I, that's my goal. I, I, I fall short. I'm sure I fall short, but I, I work toward that end every day. Well, Bertha, um, are you, are you in New York? Is that where you're located? Yes, I am. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, I'm going to be back with my, uh, my family, uh, from Tucson in, in June. And I, I'd like to do part two in person if you're around. If that's possible. Yeah. I'm planning to, uh, trip uh in june or maybe well it may be june and july because i'm working on a couple of projects the whole month of may but please call me let's see if we can get together i've enjoyed this so much yeah no i'm, I'm that's my hope is we, we, we've been bouncing around but uh, a lot of great content and uh i i have to go back and listen to where i veered off too quickly i should have kept pounding away and we'll just you know we'll do facebook live and if you're, you know, we'll be in touch, but, you know, much love to you. And uh, thank you for, thank you. thank you for being part of the program. Glad we connected. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me on, Jake. I really appreciate it. All right. Spread the good word and uh, you can look, I'll send you a copy of this later and then I'll be, you can look to, uh, you know, I'll be transcribing some of these pertinent stories and blasting them all over new media. So enjoy. Oh, great. Yeah. All, right. all right. Thank you. so much. All right. Later on. All right, bye. bye, -bye.